Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. The Persian Empire stretched over most of the known world by the death of its great king Cyrus, yet its might was only just beginning. Under the command of his son Cambyses II, the Egyptian civilization would be conquered, and although a rebellion would soon take hold, Persia's might was only starting to reveal itself. It was during the reign of Darius the Great that this political body universally agreed upon as the ancient world's most vast empire would achieve its full strength and redirect the fate of the Western world forever. On this episode, we discuss the mighty Persian Empire. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season two of the series, we're talking about the great empires of the ancient world, the forces that created and destroyed them, and the lasting legacies they leave behind that help shape our modern age. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author website, bradykreitzer.com, and your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On this episode, we continue our discussion of the emerging Persian Empire, an empire that could lay the substantial claim to being the largest empire in the history of the ancient world. To this point, we've discussed how one man, Cyrus the Great, took the Persian Empire from a relatively small, obscure city-state on the Iranian plateau, to the single largest empire we've seen yet. It certainly wasn't easy, and it certainly wasn't done without its costs. But in the end, what Cyrus had done was set the stage for the almost unthinkable, an empire that bridged the gap between the Iranian plateau, the Mesopotamian world, and beyond. Going back to the beginning, the Persian Empire is so fascinating because its origins are so humble. The original Persian people, which Cyrus was a descendant of, were nomadic herders. They lived in tents, they lived a very rough, very simple life. Only when they had settled in the city-state of Anshan, and we see the beginning of the Achaemenid dynasty, do we really see a sense of royal proclamation emerge, that is to say, the beginnings of a royal family. Cyrus, although he was not the beginning of this royal dynasty, certainly made the advancements they'd see in the future possible and would allow for the Persian Empire to rise to its greatest height, of course, but we'll be talking about in this episode. Of all of the conquests of Cyrus's world, beginning with the Median Empire, followed by the Lydian Empire, and of course that great conquest of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Babylon itself, we see a very clear and truly unprecedented methodology put forward by Cyrus. Some review of his conquest of the, of the Neo-Babylonian world will be necessary. 
The Neo-Babylonian world at the time of Cyrus's conquest was governed by a king, Nabonidus. And Nabonidus, although the, the chief executive of what's considered to be the most civilized empire in the region, wanted very little to do with the cultural milieu of his people. And a lot of very deep-seated anger and frustration was directed toward him. If you'll recall, the king of Babylon had a number of sacred obligations involved in the worship of the great god Marduk. It was those obligations that Nabonidus was not interested in completing. His mother worshipped a lesser god. He inherited that worship of that god. And he spent most of his time and a great deal of public treasure on building new temples to a god that most Babylonians considered very secondary at the time. Cyrus looking at the opportunity before him, looking at the real potential for actually conquering Babylon, saw not an obstacle, but an opportunity. He entered Babylon wearing the clothes of the Babylonian king, and it was a grand spectacle. Cyrus made it very clear, I'm not here to conquer you, I'm here to liberate you, I'm here to free you. I'm here to free you from the shackles of the king Nabonidus and behave the way a Babylonian king should behave. One of his first actions was to march to the great temple in Babylon and to fulfill the neglected obligations of the king Nabonidus, ensuring for the Babylonian people in their minds that they'd have a prosperous and profitable new year. This is really unheard of in the ancient world, but it's why we think so highly, not only of Cyrus, but also the descendants of Cyrus, those to come after him in the Persian Empire, because they'll continue this tradition of a long-range assimilation, we could say, that really makes them a very unique and very special case in the ancient world. Let's talk about the descendants of Cyrus, how they built on his legacy, and see the empire they built as a result. Before Cyrus left Babylon, again, this is to his credit, he's a man of great foresight. He realized that his empire was becoming bigger and bigger, and he couldn't be everywhere at once. Now, we don't want to say that Cyrus was a micromanager, because he wasn't, but he understood the complicated dynamics of empire in this regard. Before he left Babylon, he assigned his son, Cambyses II, to be the new king of Babylon. Now, what does that really mean? Yes, Cambyses II was given a position of power in Babylon, but his power really stopped there. From Cyrus's viewpoint, he was the emperor of this world. Cambyses knew that. But Cambyses' placement as the king of Babylon was a way that Cyrus could really keep tabs on this very powerful city. He made it one of his new capital cities, as a matter of fact while he went to deal with other problems within his emerging empire. Now, we talked about the untimely death of Cyrus in the last episode of Wartime. He ventured to the far eastern frontier, beyond the Iranian plateau, to an area controlled by a nomadic, very rough, very difficult group known as the Scythians. And it was fighting those Scythians, even after he had already fought the very advanced Medians, and the very advanced Lydians, and of course, the supremely advanced Babylonians, that he actually is killed in battle. The Scythians, as we'll see, will continuously be a thorn in the side for the Persian Empire on their eastern border. And it's there that Cyrus is killed. 
Now, the foresight of Cyrus, we can say, is to leave his son Cambyses in power. Because as much as he needed Cambyses in place in Babylon to be the eyes and ears of the empire, he also understood that an empire is nothing without a strong line of dynastic succession. So to leave his son Cambyses in power was to ensure that even without him, his empire would have a chance to be successful. Cambyses is a fascinating character, because as big as the shoes were, so to speak, that he had to fill, he never really lost sight of the goal of his father. Remember, before Cyrus dies, he's got big ambitions. One of them is to conquer Egypt. The other is to continue to move eastward as far as possible. That's the wonderful thing about the Persian Empire, is that when it's all said and done, not one, not two, but three different river valleys will fall under the imperial domain of one empire. The Nile River Valley of Egypt eventually will fall. The great Mesopotamian River Valley we've spent so much time on, on its own, a very powerful and distinguished place, will fall, as we've seen. And even the Indus River Valley of South Asia, between modern India and modern Pakistan, will fall eventually under the control of the Persian emperor. But when Cyrus dies, that's only a vision. That's not realized yet, and it will fall on those who come after him to accomplish it. Cambyses gives us a great example of this. Now, we don't have a long reign for Cambyses. We have about eight years for the son of Cyrus, and we don't call him, not to give away the ending, Cambyses the Great. That's not an epithet or a moniker that we give him. His reign is very brief uh, in the long, grand scheme of Persian history, but his role as the one who continued the legacy of Cyrus and continued the Achaemenid dynasty is undeniable. Now, when Cambyses takes power, his entire mission, his entire goal, because he was an adult when his father died, and he knew his father, after 43 years, probably died too soon, was to continue the legacy of Cyrus. He knew that Cyrus had his eyes on the Egyptian world. He knew that Cyrus wanted to go east. So he took it upon himself to move into the great Nile River Valley of Egypt. Now, what is the attraction of Egypt? Well, it's almost difficult for us to visualize this. But imagine, here's Cyrus from a relatively small city-state of Anshan on the Iranian plateau that has taken over this enormous piece of land, something no one's ever done before. And as he absorbs these new regions and absorbs these new empires and territories, all of the assets of that empire become part of his overall wealth. Now think of how much time we've spent dealing with the Egyptian world. The Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, the New Kingdom, the grandeur of figures like Khufu, Tutankhamun, Akhenaten, and Ramesses, Egypt is a huge, enormous world, really, of its own, with a great legacy of its own, holding such a high standard, being held in such regard, that we still consider it one of the great civilizations of all time. Well, if you're Cyrus, and now if you're Cambyses, you have a chance to take that empire and absorb it into your own, making your own much larger and much stronger. Cambyses believes to honor his father, and to continue the unstoppable growth at the time of the Persian Empire, Egypt is something he must invade 
and take over. And that's what we'll see. By the year 525, Egypt is in a very weak state of being. They don't have the powerful range of empire they used to have. They're on the decline. They're shrinking. They still have Pharaoh, but his power is significantly diminished by the time we get to the 6th century BCE. For Cambyses, this is nothing, if not an opportunity. A new pharaoh will take over in about the year 525 BCE, named Samtik III. And in Samtik III, you have all the problems of a new emperor. You've got an emperor that's not very experienced, You've got an emperor that wants to set an agenda but hasn't developed it yet. And you have an emperor, quite frankly, that is really beginning to navigate the harsh waters and burdens of ruling a land as vast and as powerful as Egypt. Samtik III fits all of those traits. Cambyses, for that matter, does as well. But the invasion will occur. Now, Cambyses doesn't go this alone. He's much smarter than that, and he's seen his father operate in much smarter ways than that. Cambyses begins to approach the people on the outskirts of his father's empire, particularly the large Bedouin Arab tribes of the Arabian Peninsula. And he asks them for a price if they would assist him in his invasion of Egypt. Their assistance was not necessarily in battle, but it was in supply. And again, it gets to the heart of empire. The empire does not exist to serve its expanded regions. It just doesn't. But the expanded regions exist to serve the empire. Now, the Arab chieftains could have provided a large number of warriors, I'm sure, but they weren't necessarily... Uh, part and parcel of the overall agenda of Cambyses. What he needed was what all armies need. What they need are supplies. Now, it sounds silly to us that the invasion of Egypt would be based on being well supplied, but remember, as Napoleon famously says, an army marches on its stomach. Not necessarily the case here, but you get the idea. The heart of the Persian world is the Iranian plateau. Egypt is hundreds of miles from that. Now, Babylon has become something of a middle ground capital city of the Persian Empire in Cambyses' reign, but Egypt is a great distance. He'll need these supplies provided by these Arab chieftains to help him be successful. Their most precious supply, we could imagine, is water. Now, we'll see a major battle in the conquest of Egypt called the Battle of Pelusium. But the Battle of Pelusium basically ends like this. The Persians are successful. Samtik III is on the run now for his life. In traditional Cyresian fashion, we can say, in the way that his father would have done it, Cambyses not only conquers Egypt, but he makes himself out to be the liberator. He makes himself out to be not something new, but a continuation of something old. We have a very famous Persian relief of Cambyses capturing and killing Samtik III. And when he does that, he doesn't disregard the king, but he actually takes the garments of the pharaoh and he puts it on himself. He makes the declaration just as his father did in Babylon, and just as he carried on as the king in his father's absence, that he is not a conqueror of Egypt. He's not. He's simply the new pharaoh. We see Cambyses wear the garments of the pharaoh, and this is so obviously Persian. It's why this empire is so fascinating. They understood that the, their empire is large, 
their empire is diverse, that diversity doesn't necessarily need to be problematic. In fact, that diversity could be and should be embraced. Here's a great example of this. Yes, Cambyses is dressed as Pharaoh, but even after Cambyses leaves Egypt, how do you ensure the Persians will still control it? Well, remember we talked about Cyrus liberating and freeing the Jews from Babylon, ending the Babylonian captivity. As a matter of fact, Jewish soldiers will remain behind in Egypt to ensure the Persians retain control. They're operating as a wing of the Persian army, showing their gratitude uh, and their role in this larger Persian empire. Amazingly fascinating and unusual for the time. But remember we mentioned earlier, no one ever calls Cambyses the Great, like we'll see with Cyrus the Great or even the leader that's going to come after him. So the question we now have to address is what is the ultimate legacy of Cambyses? Well, you have to view the Persian Empire from the emperor's viewpoint. In the eyes of Cambyses, everything his father has done has turned to gold. In some cases, quite literally. If this was a boxing match, the Persian Empire is 50 and 0. They are undefeated. So there's no reason for Cambyses to believe that Egypt shouldn't have fell, and it did. But it also leads Cambyses to think there's no reason the surrounding territory shouldn't fall as well. And Cambyses will set his sights south of Egypt to that great land of Nubia we've already discussed. And this is where we really start to see Cambyses falter. Moving into that area, a territory that the Egyptians could barely conquer and hold on their own, and they were really masters of that area, was an enormous miscalculation. His troops were too far from home. The landscape, the hot, dry, red desert of what is today the nations of Sudan and South Sudan was far too taxing on his men. He overextended himself. It wasn't a matter that he couldn't defeat the people there. They had many pitched battles. And with the right resources, the Persians probably could have been successful. But the supply line, the logistics, all of it was too much of a strain on the mechanisms of the empire, and Cambyses was forced to retreat. It's also during this time that a real sort of great archaeological legend emerges for us, and it comes from when Cambyses will send about 50,000 troops marching westward toward what is today Libya. As the legend goes, these 50,000 troops sent by Cambyses will march toward uh, the position of an oracle, in the western desert. An oracle is a soothsayer. Uh, it's, it's someone who can predict the future and predict your fortune located in an oasis in the western desert of Egypt. It's a critical point in the mind of Cambyses for him to conquer, and why not? Because it's all part and parcel of this great Egyptian world that now belongs to him. Well, as the story goes, a massive sandstorm will sweep through the area. And those 50,000 troops will be gone in a flash. They'll be lost forever. And really, for much of the last 200 years, archaeologists from all parts of the world uh, will continuously venture into the western deserts of Egypt, seeking out this lost army of Cambyses, these buried 50,000 soldiers. And of course, a number of people have laid claim to finding it, but no one really ever has, and in fact, we aren't even sure if it actually happened. Again, it's one of the issues of archaeology. But all of that, even if it did or didn't happen, gives you a sense that Cambyses is wearing his army 
thin. He's stretching out his forces too much. He's exhausting his resources. And on top of that, unfortunately for Cambyses, he's about to realize that the home front is just as much a battleground as the extended frontiers. I always like to make the point that a hereditary dynastic line of succession, if successful, is a system that works quite well for the ancient world, but throughout the overwhelming majority of history, what it generally produces is an ineffective and inefficient style of governance that really can compromise your entire empire if done incorrectly, and the entire system is based on one thing. What is it? Having a male heir in waiting. Imagine the strongest empire in the world, the Persian Empire, could be brought down from something as simple as not having a male heir in waiting. It seems almost silly to us moderns today, but for most of human history, this was the uh, division and progress of power in the world. Well, for Cambyses, he's got very practical concerns that many monarchs before him and many monarchs after him had to address, and it had to do with line of succession. Remember we said Cambyses was the son of Cyrus the Great, and he was made king as a result of Cyrus's wishes. These wishes were to ensure that these issues wouldn't emerge, but he wasn't the only son of Cyrus. Cyrus actually had another son, a younger brother of Cambyses, called Bardia. Now, Bardia was assigned what we could say is a sort of governorship of an eastern territory of the empire. He did receive a blessing of his father for that. Now, this is what the archaeology tells us. We have multiple versions of the story, but we'll go with the archaeological record on this. Bardia would be, without Cambyses having a son or a valid heir, the next in line. And as the story goes, Cambyses has a dream while he's in Egypt that his younger brother Bardia will rise up and overthrow him. It's a very real concern in the ancient world when it comes to line of succession. Again, as the legend has it, Cambyses will order his younger brother Bardia killed, assassinated, wiped out. But he does it in secret, and he does it in such a way that the general population of the Persian Empire doesn't know that it happened. Remember, this is an empire that now stretches all the way from the Iranian Plateau to the Nile River Valley. The Babylonians are still there. The Lydians are still there. The Elamites are still there. The Medians are still there. The Egyptians are still there. But they all now worship a new emperor. For the emperor to kill his brother, that's a major secret to hide. We'd consider it top secret in today's world. Uh, but it also causes a serious headache for Cambyses. Because with the knowledge that his brother is dead, but the general population thinking he's still alive, while Cambyses was gone fighting in Egypt and in other parts of East Africa, back home, a pretender to the throne will rise. Now, as the story goes, this individual is a member of the priestly class of the Persian Empire, and he poses himself as the recently deceased brother of the king, Bardia. Remember, most people think he's still alive, and the overwhelming majority of them have no idea what Bardia looks like. This is not an age of the internet. This is not an age of photographs. This isn't even really an age of face-to-face -face communication beyond the people who live in your immediate village. So when this person who claims to be the king's brother rises and says, Cambyses is spending all of this money, wasting all of our time, wasting all of our resources, 
he has a very clear message that's been very popular in the past. Now, who is this pretender? We aren't very clear. Again, we think it was a member of the priestly class. But for Cambyses, still in Africa, this is a problem that he has to deal with. As the story goes, on his way home, Cambyses has an accident, generally involving a large piece of wood, maybe a spear, accidentally going through his leg. He gets an infection, he gets gangrene, and he dies. So for the time being, at least, the emperor of the greatest empire the world's ever known took his position through deception. This false Bardia, this priest who's posing as the king's brother, uh, is now in power. Now, when we talk about the great Persian kings, this false Bardia is never someone that really factors in because he's really just a placeholder for the man who will eventually take the position over. Not necessarily someone who's a direct relative of Cyrus or Cambyses, but someone who, once he gains power, will take Persia to heights it's never seen before. His name is Darius. When we talk about the great emperors of the Persian world, Cambyses, false Bardia, never really factor into this discussion. It goes from Cyrus almost immediately to Darius the Great. The rest of this episode is going to be about how Darius takes already a very big empire and makes it almost unthinkably large and develops a system that is the picture of effectiveness and the picture of raw efficiency in the history of the ancient period. Darius, again, is not a direct relative of Cambyses, and he's not a descendant of Cyrus, but he does have a close relationship with the Achaemenid dynasty, so much so that we actually group him as a family member in the dynastic descent when we discuss it. Darius is the son of a figure we call the satrap of a region known as Bactra. Bactra today is in Central Asia. A satrap is effectively a system devised by earlier Persian kings uh, to govern a territory in the place of the emperor. It's a very effective system. He's delegating power of the empire out. So Darius already comes from not necessarily a royal bloodline, but certainly a noble bloodline. When Cambyses marches into Egypt, Darius, the son of this satrap, this governor, uh, carries his lance. He's known as the chief lancer uh, of Cambyses' army. He's very close to the king. He has a good relationship with him. And when Darius hears of the takeover of this imposter claiming to be the brother of Cambyses, he takes it very personally. He marches back to the heart of the empire. And he sees this false prophet that he knows is not the actual brother of the king. But at this time, in the eyes of most of the soldiers, that Persian king, that imposter claiming to be Bardia, is the one who holds all the power. So for Darius to assume power, it's going to have to take some trickery along the way. Darius and a group of other noblemen from within the empire have a plan. Uh, they attack and they assault the false king uh, in the middle of the night, and they kill him. As the story goes, uh, the people involved in this coup, by all standards, have a long discussion, and they leave the decision up to the gods who should be the new king. And when the sun rises, it is said that Darius is the clear choice to be leader. So Darius, long story short, not related to Cambyses, becomes the next emperor of Persia, unseating this usurper, this imposter, and setting Persia 
on the path for great success. Now, Darius is an enormously powerful figure. He's one of the greatest kings, not only in the history of Persia, but in the history of the ancient world. And we cannot talk about him enough in this season of wartime. Unfortunately, we only have the rest of today's episode to do it. So we'll try to take all of his achievements and make them very brief. Darius is most noted for two things. One is what we could call modernizing the empire. And two is how he deals with managing that empire. So let's focus on modernization first. When Darius looks at his empire, he sees a political domain that stretches all the way from the modern nation of Afghanistan to the modern state of Egypt, even, to a degree, to the European continent, to some of the Greeks who have pledged their loyalty to him. It's an empire the world has never seen. There is no textbook, there is no instruction manual for how to govern an empire this big. But first things for Darius are first. How do you move about this empire? Darius will commission the construction of what he calls the Royal Road of Persia. And what an immense building project. He constructs a road from the heart of the Iranian plateau all the way to Anatolia, all the way to the modern nation of Turkey, Asia Minor, whatever you'd like to call it. It's a road that is hundreds of miles long. The road is about 20 feet wide in all places, and it's a highly modern and efficient system. If you're on horseback, you can probably travel the length of it in about a week if you continuously travel. Now, nobody could travel that long. Certainly, horses couldn't travel that great distance. You're talking about hundreds of miles. So, about every 20 miles on the Royal Road, and I actually think it's every 18 miles, but we'll say 18 to 20, Darius has constructed... A place of rest. Think of it like a, a Motel 6 of the ancient world. He has an inn constructed. You can spend the night there. You can swap out your horses for fresh horses. This is, by all accounts, a very modern conception of a road to be traveled a great distance. We don't want to call it a superhighway. We don't want to overstate it. But that's effectively what it was. This is an innovation that will make traveling the empire much easier. But there's also some other reasons for this. Not only does it allow trade to flourish, not only does it allow commerce to flourish, but what we can say is Darius has a lot of major problems in the various corners of his empire, most notably people who rebel and make his life very troublesome. It seemed like for Darius, rebellions were happening everywhere. Uh, he was kind of stamping out wildfires in a way. As he'd deal with one, another one would pop up. And with the completion of the Royal Road, he can move his soldiers effectively and efficiently all across his massive new empire. It really was a stroke of brilliance to complete something we would think as modern as this. Now, we don't want to fool ourselves. This was not a straight shot, and it was not an easy journey, even though there was a road completed. For example, the road had no sense of drainage, like we'd see in something like the Roman world. It was a very rough-hewn uh, structure at the time. And because you were talking about traveling from Iran to modern Turkey, you're talking about many very, very different styles of landscape. It's going to hit every major city. It's going to hit the Elamite capital of Susa. It's going to touch Babylon. It's going to move all the way to Sardis uh, in Anatolia. And that's very different styles of landforms. You're talking about really flat 
dry desert. You're talking about very craggy, mountainous regions. You're talking about valleys and lakes and rivers. He had to cross a number of bodies of water. Now, how did he do that? Well, he didn't build a bridge on the Royal Road. He, what he built effectively was a system of pontoons, many boats side by side that you could kind of construct the road over top of. So there was no pylons in the ground across the water. Um, but he would do things like that. He'd also use ferry systems. You'd ferry from one side of the river to the other. That was the most common form of crossing rivers. But what we can say is he modernized this empire. And he made moving about very efficient and very effective. One of the other great accomplishments, if we're talking about construction projects of Darius, and again, this is some serious forethought, came from Egypt. Now, if you look at a map of Egypt today, Egypt is very notable for the canal that was built uh, between the Sinai Peninsula and Egypt proper. And it's the canal that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea. We call this the Suez Canal. You may have heard that term. Everyone knows about the Suez Canal and the importance of the Suez Canal throughout history. It was a major bone of contention in World War II, for example. Who could control Egypt and that profitable canal? But almost no one talks about the Canal of Darius. Darius also built a canal in Egypt to move goods, to move soldiers, to move supplies, and open up new commerce. But it wasn't a north-south canal connecting the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea that we'd see in the Suez Canal. It was an east-to-west canal, and it connected the Red Sea to the Nile River. So it went a little bit differently, but there you see Darius understanding the importance of that river uh, and how really controlling it would allow not only great resources to flow, but an enormous amount of wealth to flow into his kingdom as well. Now, from the vantage point of an imperial historian, I can tell you that Darius really gives us a lot to sink our teeth into. Because unlike Cambyses, who had a very short reign, an eight-year reign, Darius the Great will have almost a 40-year reign. And when you hear of a long reign in the ancient world, that means a lot of things. Number one, it means that as emperor, you are around for a long time. In fact, if someone's born during your reign, you'll be around for most of their life. That also means that your policies and your perceptions of reign are going to have time to be cemented and reinforced. So your way really becomes the way of the world. There's a lot of benefit to a long reign. And again, the longer the reign, typically the more successful you are. But it seemed like, despite all of these massive engineering achievements we've talked about, as soon as Darius became king, rebellion became a major issue. It's something we've seen over and over again in the ancient world. But every time you have a king die, and you have a bit of uncertainty, in this example, uh, when Cambyses dies, there isn't necessarily an heir apparent. You see people throughout the empire view that as their opportunity to make their great escape to carve out their own independent world. From the perspective of the emperor, all of those add up to rebellion. And for Darius, we had a number of rebellions that he had to deal with. He dealt with them all fairly masterfully. And again, it shows us some of the real nuances of empire we might miss otherwise. Eventually, rebellion will tear you apart. The groups you conquer by their very nature will seek autonomy. We say Darius has a pretty good record against them. 
Early on in his reign, and even before that, Darius was instrumental in expanding the empire eastward. He'll spend a lot of time fighting in Central Asia, in places today like Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. He even pushes the boundaries of the empire as far as the modern city of Karachi in Pakistan. Now think of that. Most of what we focused on has been on the development of Western history. But there's nothing especially Western about a city like Karachi. Pakistan is very much a place in the middle of two worlds. It's one of these great Central Asian countries for that reason. But what we see is Darius push the limits of the empire that far. So we say that we can look at the Persian Empire on a spectrum. You have a very Eastern version and conception of Persian power, and you have a very Western version and perception of Persian power. One of the real great Western versions we're going to talk about shortly. But after he has the success in the Far East, he has to come back home. Because sure enough, there's a rebellion in the old Neo-Babylonian Empire, led by a man named Nebuchadnezzar III. Nebuchadnezzar III uh, will place himself and his rebels in the city of Babylon, and he'll hold out for a year and a half. Darius will surround the city and besiege the city. And it's really a, a very real challenge to Darius's power. The way they get around it is they eventually infiltrate the city of Babylon through a spy network, and they sort of open the city walls from within and allow the rebellion to be put down. But it goes to show rebellion is not just something for the distant frontier, but it could even happen in a place as close to home as the Babylonian world. We call that the Babylonian Revolt. Now, we talked about the fact that Cyrus was killed fighting the Scythians, this very unusual, uh, very uncivilized, at least in the minds of the Persians, sort of rough, what they would consider to be barbarian group in a way. And the Scythians will become a thorn in the side of Darius again, almost immediately following the Babylonian Revolt. Cyrus will travel to the Scythian world to fight. And again, this is on the eastern fringe of the empire. And what he finds is, it's a very inhospitable place. Unlike, say, Mesopotamia or, or Lydia or Egypt, one of the things that really stands out about the Scythian world is that there really are no cities in the area. They live on a very flat piece of ground we call a steppe. Uh, they're a horse driven culture, so they ride horses everywhere. They're a mobile empire in a way. But one of the problems that Darius has is that when he fights there, normally he would just sack a city or capture a capital in some kind, but he can't do that because there just are no cities in the region. And even worse than that, there's really even no farmland for him to pillage. So what Darius has to do is effectively follow around the Scythian Empire, really only fighting on their terms until he basically throws up his hands and gives up. Uh, welcome to Central Asia. That's probably something that's never going to change in the history of warfare. Wars in Central Asia tend not to go well because the people there tend not to play by your rules. But eventually Darius is fairly comfortable. Uh, with the level of control he has over the Scythians. Now, it's not perfect. He doesn't control them all because, in his view, there's really nothing there to control. As long as some of the Scythian tribes will pledge loyalty to him, he's fine with that. Many don't, and many never will, but enough do, and he leaves the Scythian world behind knowing how it cost Cyrus his life, and he goes back west. And here's where we really see 
a clash of cultures emerged between Darius the Great and the larger Western world. Because there's one group of people who are particularly troublesome to Darius in the far west. They're a group of people who are a, a loose conglomeration of city-states, very much a mixture of styles and peoples. They all speak the same language, but they rule themselves differently. Some of these city-states were not unlike the city-state that his dynasty, the Achaemenids, began in Anshan. But they were a collection of kingships, democracies, oligarchies. They were known and they called themselves the Greeks. Now for Darius, he's conquered everyone so far. He's undefeated at this time. The Greeks seem like a logical opponent to confront next, because after all, what's better than reigning on two continents, Asia and Africa, reigning on three? If he can get a piece of this European world, he'd be very happy to do it. And the resulting conflict we'll call the Persian Wars, or the Greco-Persian Wars. And it's an enormously important story, and I promise you, even though we don't talk about it now, we will spend its own episode talking about the Persian Wars in the future. It's just too big. And quite frankly, we really wouldn't get the most out of the discussion without having a better understanding of the Greeks. But for Darius, his world is growing. He's proven that an empire, as big as his, is possible to exist, and it is possible to continue. The Persian Empire seems like there's no end in sight. And just as Cyrus did before him, Darius takes the time to name his successor. His successor will be his son, Xerxes. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.